The histrionic personality style is everywhere. And this fraternal cousin to narcissism isn't restricted just to transgender ideology. It's as extreme and deranged among the self-styled friends of Mother Earth. This week on Disinfected, we look in on extreme environmentalists, that is the average Vermont citizen. These are people who want to shut down the airport, ground all the airplanes in and out of Burlington, banish wood burning for heat, and all in the service of the children. Then we'll apply amateur forensic psychology to Dunkin' Donuts. Why is angry girl behind the counter so angry, and why is she opposed to hot sandwiches? And finally, we're gonna check back in with our driving neighbors who have abandoned all traffic rules so that we can play round robin at four-way intersections and risk getting into crashes or fist fights because taking turns sucks and etiquette's for like losers, man. All that and more this week on Disaffected. Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens from Burlington, Vermont. You know, we talk a lot about narcissism and the emotional instability and the cluster B personality style behind transgender ideology. And we do that because it's the most platonic and pure example of how broken personalities, which lead to broken thinking and broken emotions, these are elevated to godlike status in our society. But transgenderism is not the only way in which we are living in a cluster B world. The hysteria of the environmentalists is as extreme. Living in the bluest of blue states in the bluest of blue cities, Burlington is a diorama of the histrionic and narcissistic personality style. It could be a museum display in a psychiatric teaching institution if we had any worth their salt anymore. <clears throat> in the second block of the show, we're going to show you, both with video and sound, what Burlingtonians believe about the environment and the lengths to which they will go to push their agenda. But first, let's take a look at some print press coverage. This is from uh, Vermont Digger. Vermont Digger is an online progressive newspaper. And there is no far left hobby horse that they will not flog until it is gasping for air. This is a letter um, to the editor from a gentleman named Dan Castragano. Quote, an open letter to Mayor Moreau Weinberger and the Burlington City Council who fail on climate at the airport. At the Burlington Airport Commission meeting July 15th, 13 people demanded immediate degrowth at Patrick Leahy Burlington International Airport. Watch the video. Listen to them. We need to ground planes at the airport because of the climate emergency. Anything else related to cutting pollution at the airport is greenwashing. 99% of the pollution at the airport is from airplanes. The airport is a giant fossil fuel facility that pumps more than 118,000 metric tons of pollution into the atmosphere every year. The city of Burlington owns and operates that airport. The airport is not included in the Burlington Net Zero Energy Roadmap. The pollution is not counted. There is no plan except for endless expansion. Listen to the people. Act with urgency. Be brave. I would add some statistics about climate change, but I know that usually is not very persuasive. 
So here's a little bit about how I've spent the last couple of weeks with my son, who is almost two years old. We have choked in the smoke from the climate fires in Quebec. We have avoided the lake because of cyanobacteria blooms. We have suffered through extreme heat when there are heat advisories. This is but a glimpse of what's to come. All of you claim to care about climate change, but I don't believe you. Until you ground planes at the airport, you are failing." End quote. So, he choked in the smoke. <laughs> I choked on the smoke from the woke. <laughs> Notice this. We choked in the smoke from the climate fires in Quebec. Climate fires. How does he know that? How does he know it wasn't arson? How does he know it's the climate and not just a particularly bad year because, say, maybe underbrush wasn't cleared out over the past few years to the uh, best possible level? How does he know? He doesn't, but he does. It's climate fires that make you choke in the smoke. Ground all the airplanes. Stop travel. Stop air travel in and out of the state. Exaggerate the dangers of hot weather. Call the lake. Call Lake Champlain poison because it sometimes has algae blooms. <laughs> but most of all, pour scorn and moral disappointment on everyone who doesn't immediately cave to your most extreme environmental demands. Now, surprisingly, Vermont Digger published an opinion piece by a skeptic of environmental extremism. Um, this is John McClowry, and they titled it, Don't Be Fooled by Global Average Temperature. John McClowry is vice president of the local conservative Ethan Allen Institute, and um, by trade, he has a master's in nuclear engineering. <clears throat> Quote, last week was a banner for climate crisis headlines. Washington Post, the world is hotter than it's been in thousands of years. Associated Press. For the third time this week, Earth sets unofficial heat record. Politico, scientists are freaking out about surging temperatures. John says, as anyone in the media business knows, headlines are apt to be more sensational than the reporter's actual stories. The two climate scientists quoted in the Politico story, for example, offer accurate descriptions of meteorological events, but neither is close to freaking out. Now, John makes the point in this piece that while he believes that humans are contributing to climate change, that we can't know exactly how much that is the case. The press and activists exaggerate the doom, he says, and I think he's right. And we can't possibly know the history of global average temperatures as accurately as we claim let alone knowing that one day this year, in 2023, was the hottest day in history for more than 100,000 years, as our politicians and CNN and the press are claiming. If you haven't seen that, that is a real claim they're making. They are saying that we just recorded the hottest day in world history over a span of more than 100,000 years. It's, it's, I, can I say it shocks me? It really bothers me that people are immediately repeating that. It doesn't even occur to that. Like, the question, as soon as I heard that headline, the very first thing that occurred to me, which I think is the most obvious thing, I thought that anybody would think that the first time they heard that, was how do we know the temperature on every single one of the days over 100,000 years? We, we don't. 
We don't. We can't. How could we know that? We're cavemen and we're like, ooh, ooh, coconut at 98.7 degrees. I mean, come on. <laughs> they were too busy riding brontosauruses anyway. <laughs> But seriously, people, this this didn't this didn't provoke any skepticism in so many people. I saw repeating this stuff. So John McClary, um, he points out that we're just taking for granted that all of the temperature measurements that we have just for the past few hundred years. So just go from like enlightenment forward, scientific method forward. We're taking for granted that all those temperature measurements we that we have records for for a couple hundred years are all just perfectly accurate. There's nothing to question there. Not only it, the instruments, you know, the much cruder instruments, we're just assuming that they're as accurate as the instruments we use today, um, no matter how crude they used to be. And we're also assuming that the act of recording was regulated and according to the same standards that we use today and that there was somebody checking on it. And, and it's an apples to apples comparison. And I just don't see how that makes any sense. Um, and again, McClowry in his piece for Vermont Digger, he doesn't deny that humans are probably contributing to a warmer planet, but he does question how much we're doing that. And he also questions exactly how bad or dangerous it actually may be. This is the response that came in Vermont Digger in a letter to the editor. This is a very typical Vermont style letter. Letter to the editor, McClowry can only be seen as a climate science denier. John McClowry is completely out of step with both science and the people of Vermont. Notice that. Out of step with the people of Vermont. See how that was smuggled in with out of step with science? They teamed together like that? That's your tell. This is about social and moral conformity and nothing else. It's not about climate. It's about imposing social conformity. Quote, it is disheartening to have to once again see John McClowry in his July 20th commentary try to confuse and mislead Vermonters on global warming and climate change. His comments range from, quote, climate change is not a thing to reference to the, quote, global warming hypothesis. They show that McClowry is completely out of step with both science and the people of Vermont. He spends much of his commentary repeating what someone who he refers to as a, quote, professional engineer and, quote, Canadian, has to say about worldwide temperature measurement. What kind of engineer is this? And what is his expertise in meteorology that would be required for such commentary? What does it matter that he's a Canadian? He also cites someone who he simply names as a, quote, climate skeptic, without giving any basis for why he is any kind of expert. Being skeptical is a natural part of what scientists do in their work. They want to be certain about something before they declare it as such. Then they move to the stage of scientific acceptance. What are we doing, Kubler-Ross here? For example, gravity and the non-flatness of the Earth are scientifically accepted. They have moved beyond skepticism. One who doesn't believe in gravity or Earth roundness are deniers, not skeptics. Uh, grammar is in the original. Global warming due to human actions and its impact on, again, grammar in the original, climate change is scientifically accepted. There is no room for skeptics. McClowry can only be seen as a climate denier who is doing Vermonters a severe and dangerous disservice in his commentaries, end quote. 
Now, the letter writer scoffs at Mr. McClowry's credentials. What kind of engineer is this, he says, of the, of the engineer that McClowry cited? And he, he pretends that McClowry was trying to burnish the reputation of this engineer skeptic he was using by saying that he was Canadian. What does it matter that he's Canadian? That's one of those disingenuous nonsense questions. I'm, I'm actually not being mean here. I would be mean if I credited that the letter writer was as stupid as that sounds, because that sounds dumb. That sounds like what a little kid would say. I don't believe that he believes that John McClowry thought, well, if I say he's a Canadian, then people will believe him. Come on, sir. But the letter writer cares very much also about his own credentials. Take a look at how he signed his letter. Dan DeLury, Senior Fellow for Climate and Energy, Vermont Law and Graduate School. So he's a lawyer. Well, a law degree isn't a meteorology degree, is it? So how can Mr. DeLury know to even question any of this? Where, where is his meteorological degree that, that is required for him to be able to comment on this? How does he know about anyone else's credentials when he doesn't have that credential himself? He's, he's a mere lawyer. Why is he allowed to speak? <laughs> you know, I realized this week, putting this show together, thinking about this, I've been thinking about environmental extremism a lot this week because it's all over the news. It's all that people are talking about. And particularly in a place like Vermont where we just had this historic catastrophic flooding, you can imagine it's, it's, it's difficult to have a conversation that isn't tedious. I was walking my property uh, a few days ago talking with, um, uh, talking with a couple people around and taking a look. And foolishly, I should have anticipated this, but foolishly, I, I was complaining and I said, you know, they call these 100 year flood events, but what the hell? This is the second time in 11 years that this has happened. Well, that prompted immediately from the people I was speaking with. Well, we keep warming up the planet. You know, this is going to keep happening. We keep killing the planet. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I, this is the kind of thing. If you don't want to find yourself in a conversation like that, you have to try to think two steps ahead about what kind of jokes you're going to make, what kind of small talk you're going to make, because it doesn't matter. Anything is a, anything opens that up here. That, this is what Vermont considers normal small talk. You can't even get coffee without this subject coming up. But anyway, I was thinking back on my, on my days in public school, because I was thinking about what children are being taught and the emotional and psychic burden that school children are carrying right now. People like, well, when, when she was a child, Greta Thunberg was a victim of this kind of doomsaying from her parents and from the people who were making her into a media commodity. She's not a child now, she's a full grown adult and I don't see her as a victim anymore. She's moved into the perpetrator category. But I realized that my childhood in public schools carried the seeds of the same poisonous creation of child activists that we're so concerned about in today's public schools. And they started with my generation, Generation X. Um, beginning in fourth grade, this would be 1980, around 1984. Beginning in fourth grade, we were instructed in social studies, and this was uh, Southern California public schools, Orange County. Uh, we were instructed in social studies all about the terrible things that we were all doing to Mother Earth. And in those days, acid rain was the big one. All the polluting factories were causing all of the rain that fell from our skies to go acidic. 
all monuments, gravestones, buildings made out of stone, all of these would be worn away and unrecognizable by the time we were adults. That's what we were told by our teachers. The films that they showed us, and they did, they showed us propaganda climate films, uh, they depicted trees with uh, graying, dead, falling leaves, and we were also told that all of these trees would be dead by the time we were grown up. This is what adults were telling us in 1984. Look around. Just look around. Do we see that any of that has happened? I, I, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't even ask that question because we are at the point where you could put somebody in front of a vista of verdant, healthy, old-growth forest, and people are so religiously and emotionally around the bend these days, they'd look at it and say they saw a desert. In fourth grade, <laughs> they also taught us about a mysterious illness that was new. This was an illness that certain men were getting. Reminder, fourth grade, I was 10 years old. We kids were 10 years old. It's a mysterious illness that certain men were getting. Men who lived in cities, men who were artistic, men who liked nightlife. The words gay and homosexual, of course, were never spoken, but they didn't need to be spoken because I knew what they meant, and I'm sure that I wasn't the only child in that classroom that had an inkling. As an aside, I misheard the teacher during this initial lesson about the mystery illness, and I went around for months convinced that these fancy men got a condition called eggs. <laughs> yes, like cracking open an egg for an omelet. When I could not figure this out and I couldn't take it anymore, I finally asked, I, I told my mother, I asked her how men could get eggs. What exactly were these eggs? And why did these eggs kill the men? And my mother's looking at me, this is not her fault. She's looking at me like I'm, you know, from another planet, huh? And then she gets it and she laughed her ass off. <laughs> and she explained to me that the word was AIDS, AIDS. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we were looking for AIDS. Why were they teaching fourth graders any of this? Why was it our job as 10-year-olds to fight acid rain and the degradation of the ozone layer and oh, how we were shamed? Oh, how we were shamed for using aerosol hairspray in high school. Oh yeah, you think social shaming just came about these days? Oh no, you could get socially canceled for not making sure that uh, when you went to get your rave hairspray that you got the little, I'm serious, people used to morally preen. I probably did this, I'm sure I did this. You know, because hairspray was a big thing in the 80s, but people would conspicuously, they'd hold their hairspray in such a way, they'd spray their hair, make sure you saw that they were using the pump nozzle, that it was non-aerosol, all that signaling, you know? Um, so why was it our job? Why was it our job to be taught these things and to be activists to, to save the ozone layer uh, and, and to stop its degradation, which somehow, Mirabile Dictu, seems to not be a problem anymore. Because they were teaching us to be activists. They weren't teaching us as school children, they were teaching us to be climate warriors. They were using us. The narcissism of the baby boom generation, that is my mother's generation, my teacher's generation, the narcissism is, is breathtaking. And you know that's where it started. We talk about the narcissism, I talk about the narcissism of young people a lot on this show, but it was my mother's generation that first bucked the system and the man, wouldn't trust anyone over 30, 
demanded political change right here, right now, and also give me bigger cars and bigger houses and give me birth control and free love and give me, give me, give me, give me. There was a reason the 70s were called the me decade. In the next block of the show, you're going to hear from some of these baby boomers in their own words. The most narcissistic generation the U.S. had ever seen up until that point is now graying and in its dotage, and they're scrabbling to keep getting that sweet, sweet narcissistic supply. This kind of people believes that they are the most important and consequential generation ever to live. Now in their old age, they brag about how they've come to their senses and they've realized how much their generation changed the world for the worse and was killing the planet. God-like powers these people ascribe to themselves. But now, now they've seen the light and all they want to do is save the children. They believe the children are our future and that we should teach them well and let them lead the way. Because learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. Come back after the break for another visit to the Burlington City Council that we visited recently. But also, take a moment while we're on break, subscribe to us on Rumble. We are trying to get a bigger presence going over there, and we've got some exclusive content that's going to be coming out on there. So just go to Rumble and look for Disaffected Podcast. Make an account there. Subscribe. Definitely make the account because when our show comes up there, you need an account to actually comment. And we will see you after the break. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more, and all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com, or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. We're going to dip in and take a look at the Burlington City Council meeting that happened recently. And the topic is um, what they're calling a, well, it's a resolution. Burlington wants to do all of this stuff to save the environment. And a lot of it doesn't make any sense. So what's being debated here has to do with a resolution in Burlington just the city, not the state, that would require all new buildings in Burlington to have, quote, renewable heat, end quote. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but renewable heat by 2024, that is next year, all buildings. So how's that going to work? Well, um, if buildings don't have renewable heat, they will have to pay an a carbon impact fee, which is their term to avoid saying the word punitive tax. This is a tax. 
Um, they won't call it a tax, but this will be uh, a tax on all buildings that are not able to meet these requirements. And I haven't read all of the requirements in exhaustive detail, but it's going to be a lot of built. It's not the buildings that can't meet the requirements, although some of them won't be able to be retrofitted. Um, but it's also the people because people own the buildings. And even though people in this town tend to think of business owners like we like they were all. Well, we yes, I'm a business owner, too. Disaffected is, is an LLC. Right. Um, my my rental house is a business. I'm a small business owner. Who makes small business profits. Like most people who own businesses in cities like this, these are real people. They don't have endless uh, money. But they're not Scrooge McDuck. They don't have a vault. Um, so this resolution, the impact fee, the tax on all buildings that won't be able to meet requirements and by 2030. So that is just seven years away, six and a half years away. All heating will have to be net zero carbon. So there will be no carbon waste and every bit of carbon that gets used will be offset in some way that actually means something. And we can see tangible results for I am absolutely sure. Some of these people you're going to see from this meeting, we're going to show you clips from the public forum session. They are protesting a plan, a local plan that would build a steam pipeline from one of our existing wood burning electricity generation plants. Yes, that's right. We have a wood burning power plant. This pipeline would be built between the power plant and the University of Vermont Medical Center, which is on the campus of, of University of Vermont, obviously, and provide heat to many of the buildings up there. Now, if I understand it correctly, this would be capturing some waste heat that isn't otherwise used for power generation. It seems to me on the surface to be an increase in efficiency, which would be a good thing. Oh, these people do not like it one bit. They do not want that happening. Isn't that weird? What is that? Oh, oh, I know. It's that they don't actually care about what they say they care about. They just want to destroy things. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go into our first clip here. Do I start? Yes. Um, thank you. Um, quickly, I've been living here for 35 years. For the last 10 years, I gave up my car, cycle everywhere to St. Michael's College, even during the winter. Uh, no, no gas or oil in the house. Um, got a restaurant outside the White House with Bill McKibben, etc. 350 member. I'm just putting, I'm putting, I put my, 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 my words where my mouth is, or, or, or my name. Just to keep doing, but this is for those who support him the following. Just keep doing and supporting uh, the no upgraded F-16s to F-35s, nuclear weapon equipped jets, and adding to the climate change uh, problem, uh, disaster, uh, ditto the military complex. Just keep agreeing and promoting the new plan for the developing of the wood chip factory and the pipeline to the hospital as an antiquated excuse that will only uh, bring more will only damage more uh, and, and add to the fossil fuel terror. And just keep doing and supporting the fossil fuel industry. Even if you think that you're compromising, there's no compromises with the fossil fuel industry anymore. The earth is not going to be the handless and the children. Um, 
and, 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 and just keep wishing your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren uh, how much you love them and care for them, and um, tell them that you are worried about them for the future and you're doing everything you can. Okay, this is for those who are supporting those that, not for those who are not. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So, he's been living in the United States for 35 years. Ten years ago, he gave his car up. He bicycles everywhere, even to St. Michael's College and even in the winter. He has no oil and no gas in his house. How does he heat the house? Let me guess, electricity. <laughs> the least efficient way to <laughs> he started. Of course, he had to bring up the nuclear bombs uh, with the F-16s at our Air National Guard base at the airport, you know, because you got to get all the lefty things in there. He got arrested in front of the White House. Look at the good he does. Look at the good he does. And because he does that much good, that is why he is able to then use the rest of his commentary time to do what most people call passive aggression, but I call veiled or, co or covert aggression. It's basically the sarcasm, right? You know, just keep telling your children you care about them. <laughs> Let's roll the next. Good evening. <clears throat> Thank you for this time, uh, counselors. My name is Sylvia Knight. I live in Burlington, Vermont. My comments tonight pertain to agenda item 7.7, .7, the resolution number nine regarding aviation and ground emissions at Burlington Airport. My sincere thanks to Councilors Bergman, King, McGee, and Hightower for their efforts on this resolution. As an elder citizen of Burlington, I live with existential anxiety and sorrow regarding the degraded condition of earth that my grandchildren are inheriting. We have all just witnessed extensive flooding and destruction in Vermont, an extreme global warming event. And that is not the only crisis. Water is grossly contaminated and many crops are destroyed. People will go hungry. We are causing the sixth global extinction event. We ourselves, humans. Typical. The degraded condition of the earth that our children and my grandchildren are inheriting. This, these people are, these people are religious. This is a religious movement. It's not a rational or a factual movement. This is just the fall from paradise. It's the expulsion from Eden. Um, and, and I'm not criticizing religious people per se, but I am saying that there is not a distinction. It's not that these are the rationalists who live in the real material world and all these religious people who believe in God or fairy dust or whatever, however these people would describe it. That's not this. There's no split here. They are as religious as anyone who participates in something that falls under the traditional definition of a religion. She calls the recent flooding, uh, the historic catastrophic flooding in Vermont that I have personal face-to-face -face experience with, she calls it an extreme global warming event. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, and she ends up by saying, we, we humans are causing the sixth global extinction event. They may not be screaming, they may not have purple hair, but their words are histrionic. They are exaggerated, they're, emo they're hysterical. These, and some of these people, undoubtedly, I don't know what percentage, but undoubtedly, many of these people do believe what they're saying. They don't experience their reaction as hysterical or histrionic. They experience it as reasonable because they're convinced of the factual truth of what they're claiming. So we have to remember that, that, you know, when when you believe, when you genuinely believe that you're in danger, that the guy at the other end of the parking lot has a gun and he's about to kill you, you know, freezing up and trying to figure out how to get out of there and save your life and talk about it. That's not a hysterical reaction. It's real. But so they believe that that this is really happening, but it isn't. It's not happening the way they think it is. Let's go to the next one. You may be thinking, what is that old lady doing here again? I'd like to tell you why I'm here. It's for the children who are saying, it's so hot today, can we go swimming? And for their parents who must say, no, the water in the lake is poisoned by cyanobacteria. And it's for the elders who are saying, I'm so lonely. Can I go visit my children and my grandchildren? Can I go out and visit my friends? They're told, no, the air is too polluted for you and it's dangerously hot. And I'm here for all the people impacted by the floods and the droughts and wildfires and wars and other man-made disasters. And for the animals and the plants that are becoming extinct in the, in the changing climate. And I'm here because as a boomer, I know that my lifestyle growing up is responsible for many of the changes that we're seeing. That's what I was talking about. As a boomer, I know that my lifestyle is causing X, Y, and Z. I know that that sounds self-effacing, and I know that it sounds as though it's somebody taking responsibility. I don't interpret it that way. I don't see it as self-effacing. I see it as humble bragging. I see it as solipsistic, self-centered. And I'm not, I'm not saying personality disorder. I'm, I'm not, when I'm using the term narcissism, particularly in this show today, I'm not saying that every time I use the word narcissism, please don't hear narcissistic personality disorder. I'm not saying narcissism exists outside of the construct of the personality disorder. Okay. I am talking about elevated narcissism. I talk about misdirected uh, thinking. Um, but this really is a sort of self-centered way of viewing the world. You know, my generation did this and now my generation is going to save us from it. I'm not sure that your generation is that powerful and consequential. I, but you're here for the children. You're just here for the children. You're here for the lake. You're here. The elders who are told, no, you can't go outside and visit your, visit your family because it's too hot and the air is polluted. Come on. Who's saying? Nobody's saying that. That is not true. Vermont, it's just not true. It's not only not factually true, but nobody is saying that. Vermont has some of the cleanest air in the entire country. This is the greenest place. I'm just the color green. The lush green is everywhere I've ever been in my life. We have an abundance of water and clean, fresh air. Oh, you can't go outside. The air is too polluted. That's insanity. 
Stop it. Next one, please. I'm Ashley Adams. I live in Ward 6, and I'm here to support the VTANG Greenhouse Gas Emissions Resolution. I want to thank Councilors Bergman, King, McGee, and Hightower for sponsoring it. In 2019, the City Council passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency, rightly stating that, quote, restoring a safe and stable climate requires a society-wide emergency mobilization on a scale not seen since World War II to reach zero greenhouse gas emissions across all sectors at wartime speed. Oh, for goodness sake, this one has it all. She's, she's, got, both, she's got both kinds of the linguistic affectation. She's got... Um, Thinks, thank you, speaking. You know, she's got that really small, uh, you make my voice really small like this. And she's also got vocal fry. Linguistic uniforms. Notice them. We need zero greenhouse gases at wartime speed. You know, the younger generation, I really believe, is jealous of baby boomers and people that, uh, their parents who actually went through World War II, and they're also jealous of their parents for going through the civil rights movement. What are they jealous of? The drama. They, there's, I think people genuinely want to feel on some level connected to something big and historic, but they also want the theatrical pantomime. Why? To catch the feels. They want to feel a way about themselves and their friends. That's why. Next clip, please. There's a good disconnect amongst Americans, left, right, all of you. You all have seemed to have forgotten how to communicate. You all seem to be living in your bubbles. It's disgusting the hypocrisy that I see every which way I turn. You know, I wonder how many people just lost their housing in flooding, who were advocating for the homeless to be thrown out of motels. And now I wonder if you were to look at their political views on this, where they're standing on homeless help now that they're also homeless. You see, this is where it comes to. Unions, Americans, everybody, they only care about themselves and they only want support when they need it. But then, when everybody else needs it, they're not there. Or worse, they're against help. You see, the problem is, is that America and Americans have already defeated our own selves through the way that we treat each other, through the way that we are, that we treat the planet, we treat our children. It's just straight up contempt. And here's the irony. The rich and those in charge, the police, the military, they're all the ones who led the charge on treating people with contempt. And then when it starts blowing back their way because of the circumstances they've made. They go, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Care about me. You know what? Do you care about me? If you don't care about me, why am I supposed to care about you? I'm not sure what to make of him. I think he has some points, but it's kind of confusing exactly who he's directed at. I, I do ping. I, when I hear people say the rich, the police, and the military, they're the ones who did all this, it, it's really hard not to hear angry, bitter, resentful leftist. 
you know, because it's always people who have more money than me did this. People, you know, and that's not to say that 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 the that the uber rich and the masters of the universe aren't pulling strings because they certainly are. But how does he know? How does he know that people who lost their homes in flood? Did you notice that he 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 checked himself real quickly? If you go back, if you rewind, you people who lost their home housing. He was going to say homes, but then he switched right to housing. Might be a linguistic tell, you know, the housed and the unhoused. How does he know that they don't care about homeless people? How does he know that about people who lost their homes in floods? I don't think he does know that. We're going to uh, end up with an item here. If, since you're probably sick of Burlington, I'm going to take you to Seattle. <laughs> item. An activist from Seattle is perched on top of an enormous 200-year-old red cedar tree set to be cut down to make room for six new affordable housing units. The tree has been named Luma. Luma is 80 feet tall with two thick trunks, each about four feet around. The occupation of Luma started on July 14th with activists taking turns in the tree, sitting in a hammock attached to the branches. Droplet 2, an activist stated that her objective is to occupy the tree and persuade arborists to decline the building developer's tree removal. She believes that affordable housing and the trees can coexist together. The initial plan was to remove the tree, but it was put on hold following Droplet's first ascent. <laughs> According to Droplet 2, she was, quote, selected to protect Luma and thinks that the tree won't interfere with building work. Signs have been placed in the area requesting public assistance. According to a letter from the Snoqualmie tribe, the tree, which is set to be cut down soon, was used historically for navigation in an indigenous trail system. Awareness events have been held by supporters while activists sat inside the tree. Others are on the ground supporting Droplet 2's efforts as she sits 50 feet in the air. Fellow activists sit in lawn chairs under the shade of Luma, providing Droplet 2 with food and water using a rope and bucket. <laughs> Droplet 2 intends to remain in the tree for as long as necessary, noting that she will stay for a year or as long as Luma needs her. Will someone please get me some of those desiccant packets they put in the uh, medicine bottles? I got me some droplets that need soaking up. Oh, Lord. Okay, we're coming to a break here, but do you want to produce Disaffected? Because we'd love to have your help making it. Sign up as a supporter to the show. There's two options. You can go to disaffectedpod.substack.com or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. And if you sign up and join us, help us pay for the show, you'll get access to our Discord, our private chat server, with almost 400 other disaffected people like you. And backstage recording events. So, thank you for your support. We'll see you to close up the show. Can't get enough of our love, baby? That's because you're not subscribed. Move that thumb over to the great big old subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. We put out audio-only exclusive content that you won't get on any other video platform, so make sure you subscribe today. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. 
you've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. Do you have a problem that you want to talk about? If you've got a fractious family member or fractured family, do you have maybe an abusive boss, somebody who undermines you but praises you in public? Are you trying to figure out what is going on with your friendship circle and people that you've known for 20 or 30 years suddenly thinking that you're crazy or morally contaminated? You can talk to me. I offer one-hour consulting and coaching sessions through my website. You can go and look at joshuaslocum.net. And I've changed it up a little bit because, well, it's a little bit of a buffet meal. Um, I do concentrate mainly on helping people figure out how to manage psychologically abusive or fragile people who are problems in their lives. I've got a lot of experience personally and gaining more professionally with, with those who have narcissistic traits particularly. But I'm also, um, I'm also an expert on funeral planning and end-of-life stuff. This is what I did for 20 years. And a lot of the people who watch the show are middle-aged. And it is our parents um, that we are going to be facing these issues with sooner rather than later. So take your pick. And in fact, we can talk about anything you like to. It doesn't have to be anything uh, necessarily. Uh, you don't have to know that the people in your life are cluster B. You just have to have a problem. Um, and I'd love to spend an hour talking with you. So visit joshuaslocum.net. This week in New Normal is how we're going to close out the show. And this is our becoming more frequent segment on the devolution of civility in modern blue progressive America. As you know, the decline of etiquette, politeness, and rule following seems to be the worst in heavily progressive areas like Vermont. When I tell these stories in front of people who live in the Midwest or the South, they're gobsmacked. This week features another round robin at a four-way intersection and a Dunkin' Donuts worker whose customer service was as cold as the food that she served me. Where I live, there's a constant hum of demoralization going on in the background. It's like living near an electrical transformer. If, you're, if you are unlucky enough or have been unlucky enough to live near one, you get used to it, but there's this constant low-level hum in the background that you never get fully used to. And it's enervating. It's draining. That's what it's like here. The synopsis, Burlington is the Victorian small town version of San Francisco. Beautiful to look at at the surface from a distance, but when you get close enough to see detail, things sour. 20 years ago when I was new to this state, it had already become a leftist state. And I remember people coming in. No, I came in. I remember people telling me that the state, in, and this was 20, uh, 2002 when I came here, um, that the state was very different from the one they grew up in, that it used to be sort of an old school, moderate Republican, Yankee farmer state. Uh, but of course, the hippies and the back to the land people came in the late 60s and the 70s, and that has, that has continued. I, if you think of Vermont as, oh, that's the peace, love, and Ben and Jerry's thing, yeah, that's the branding that we have now but that's only the most recent facelift of this state. That's not the historical Vermont. Vermont is sort of a theme park 
of what it used to be. But when I came here, since I was a leftist, this, this atmosphere suited me, and it wasn't as extreme then as it is today. Y you had your hippies, your vegans, your community activists, your middle-class non-player characters. Of course, you had all those. But even accounting for the fact that I was blind to the problems with that political and cultural outlook when it was mine, decades ago, it still wasn't as bad as it is today. It's demoralizing. This city and its people will sap your mood, your outlook, and your hope. But even leaving aside the, the actual increases in violent crime, big city-level violent crime is now occurring here. This is a town of 40,000 people. It's a city, but it's 40,000 people. It's a big, small town. That's all it is. Even leaving aside the increasing shootings, the street fights, fist fights, hair pulling, wig snatching out on the streets, the volume of everyday incivility, rule breaking, lack of any shared mores or etiquette, and the general sense when you go out of being morally surveilled by the people around you, all of this is enough to make it an unhappy place to live. And the societal decline scales both up and down. Underneath the dramatic public incidents, there's a deep river of everyday apathy and indifference and sometimes contempt. It's been a long decline and it started years ago. But just like the, what we call the learning loss that public school kids have suffered um, in an accelerated way overnight during the alleged pandemic, so did the unraveling of civic and harmonious life occur in my liberal city. What has happened in the past three years would have taken 20 years or longer to occur if it had happened at the pace that it used to happen at. The pace of decline has not slackened. But even inflation, even inflation, although it's still high, has at least slowed, but the social devolution where I, have, where I am has not. In the past three days, um, well, I wrote this a few days ago, but this happens every day, so, you know, pick your day. Three cars in three days simply took red lights. And this is what I mean when I say they took red lights. They sailed through them, even at four-way intersections at major thoroughfares. These are big intersections with lots of cars lined up at, in all four directions waiting to go. This is not some country road at night where it's safe to blow off a stop sign because you can tell that nobody is coming. And I don't mean that these drivers pushed stale yellow lights. I'm not saying that. They're not doing that. It's much more than that. These are people who saw that they had a red light a full at least five seconds before they even got to the intersection. Full red light already. Okay? They just keep going. Even accelerating. They just keep going even if cars traveling at right angles to them had a green light and were already accelerating into the intersection. And I, you know... Uh, I, 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 try to, I try to see if I can catch the expression on the driver's face, and when I can, they don't care. They are not looking. They're not looking. They don't care. They're laughing, or they've got that stone face. I'm going to take my red light. You know? The other day, well, see, in the past, I might have experienced something like this a couple of times a year. You know, that, that sort of flagrant taking of a red light and, and putting people in danger of a T-bone accident. Now it's several times a week, at least. 
The other day, I thought that I was going to be in the middle of a road rage incident around the corner from my house. This is a residential, small street part of town. There are houses on three corners, and on the fourth corner of this intersection is a Catholic church. Four of us pulled up to the four-way stop at about the same time, and nobody, nobody knew what to do. One person would inch and then slam on the brakes, inch and then slam on the brakes, responding to somebody else uh, when the car on the right started inching forward, too. This went around the intersection about two or three full revolutions of (coughs) 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 roughly clockwise, which I remind everybody is the rule that would have helped had anyone remembered that we do actually have an etiquette for four-way intersections, but no one does remember that. One guy started to get angry. I could see him in his truck with the windows rolled up. He started to gesticulate, and it appeared that he was yelling. Um, I thought it was going to get a lot tenser than it did. I'm, I'm sh- all of us were frustrated. All four of us drivers were frustrated, and we were also frozen. None of us knew what to do. Because in that situation, because there were no rules to depend on, we'd already figured out that nobody was going to depend on rules. We had to try to read minds and predict what the other person would do. And of course, that doesn't work. Um, So none of us knew what to do. I finally took the chance. I broke it. And I accelerated really quickly through the intersection. Um, Somebody has to. One of these days, maybe I'm going to get clipped. But if it's not me, someone else is going to do that, right? This this has to happen. This is the only way this can happen because we've abandoned conventions. We will not agree to follow rules and order. This is a direct consequence of the abandonment of etiquette and rules, the abandonment of order. And order has two senses. There's order in the sense of, of something that is done in a predictable and routine way. And there's also the sense, there's also a hierarchical sense of order. And that that is when when the rules say that one party in the transaction will have first claim, first prerogative, first place in line, right? So there's both regular, ordinary orderliness, and then there's the hierarchical aspect that says, you go first, you go second, you go third. This is what happens when we mutually agree to adopt the same routines. That's how we build these etiquettes. And these routines assign places to a party in the transaction, and it takes away confusion. Someone will always be first in line. It seems to me that every day, fewer and fewer of my fellow citizens seem to agree that this is a good way to live. Collectively, we seem to have a big issue with the concept of order. We don't like it not one bit. In fact, it seems to offend a great deal of us. We seem to believe that we're above having to follow rules or hew to convention if that means that we will not be served first. Me, mine, gib me. I'm still thinking about those three other people at this intersection. The most plausible assumption, I think, is that we all felt paralyzed and jammed up and no one person was at fault. None of us could figure out what to do, how to do it safely, because we had no way to know what the other drivers were thinking. And this is the penalty for societies that abandon order. And how do we, what can we do about this? I, I don't know. 
I'd, I'd love your comments. I'd love your discussion in the comments underneath this video. What can we do about this? How can we talk to people, these people at the intersections? Can you imagine what it would be like if we could magically be whisked out of our cars and we were all sat down around a table with coffee or beer and we all realized that we were all in the same boat. We were all nervous. We didn't want to step on anyone else's toes, but we sure didn't want to get creamed in a car either and that we didn't have to be each other's enemies and that there might be a way to work it out. Wouldn't that be great? But I don't know how we get there or if we get there at all. And then the deluge. I was up at, um, oh, I know you're not going to have any sympathy for me. I'm a night person. I, you know, I tend to go to bed late and, and wake up later than most people. But I was up at six in the morning uh, this past Thursday to rip sheetrock out of my flooded downstairs apartment. And I needed some fuel to get me going. I needed breakfast. So I was in Montpelier. And, of course, there's no such thing as a McDonald's or Burger King in Montpelier because that's day class A. We don't like that kind of thing there. Uh, they would much prefer you park and get out of your car and get a breakfast sandwich at the Locavore Crepery. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. <laughs> the only option for fast food is Dunkin' Donuts, which is not so great to begin with. So here's what happened. Um, I pull in there. I thought I was going to order a breakfast sandwich, but I got served with contempt. I ordered that sandwich at Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, excuse me, at Dunkin'. I apologize. I haven't yet internalized the overnight new name. It's now Dunkin', not Dunkin' Donuts. This is the last step before it simply becomes DD or D. Have you you've noticed that, right? Now, Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's KFC. People don't even know what acronyms are anymore. AARP said they're no longer the American Association of Retired Persons, but they're the letters that stand for those words. <laughs> when I got out of the car, when I got to the car, I took my sandwich out and it was cold. And I don't mean that it was room temperature. I mean that I stuck my finger into the middle of the sandwich and I felt refrigerator temperature ingredients. The eggs were cold. It was so cold that the slice of cheese was actually rigid. It was sticking out of the sandwich, right? It had rigor mortis. <laughs> um, it, hadn't, it hadn't been heated at all. Um, they actually took the ingredients right out of the refrigerator, assembled them somehow, and just didn't heat them. Now, mistakes happen. I was a waiter, uh, backup bartender for about 12 years, and I made so many mistakes, and I know what restaurant work is like, that they used to show up in my stress dreams night after night. I get it. There's no way you can run food service without making mistakes. I'm not complaining about the mistake. Although I will say, this kind of mistake is a little weird. Simply not heating the food at all is a little bit more extreme than the kind of mistakes I'm used to. The problem wasn't the mistake, it was the staff response. I brought the sandwich back in, it was very politely, and I was, and I came with a smile, and I preceded it with an, excuse me, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cause you extra work, but, and I asked for the sandwich to be reheated, and there's no way I could have been more genial and non-threatening. Angry girl behind the counter took my sandwich and, uh, that I'd given to her coworker, glared at her coworker, and then she glared at me. Um, complaining, you see, means customer is bad. Customer not entitled to expect hot food. Who does customer think customer is? I waited for five minutes, and all the while, angry girl, being an angry girl, was tossing everybody's bagged orders onto the go shelf, screaming at the top of her lungs, bagel, cream, cheese, everything, bacon, bagel. You know, tossing it over there, you know. She was being really aggressive and absolutely communicating to customers that she did not want to be there and they better get their shit and leave. But she reserved her biggest anger for me. She walked over with what was obviously my sandwich in her hand, 
falling out of the wrapping paper as she handed it back to me. Um, and she preceded it by saying, bacon croissant sandwich for whoever. Yeah, I'm doing her accurately. She was communicating absolute contempt to me for not wanting a cold sandwich. New normal, folks. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.